0: Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Bill Yao. Bill is a serial entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, diplomat, and author. He's founded two unicorn companies as well as two global social enterprises, Code Dojo, which teaches coding to kids in 107 countries, and WeForest, which has planted over 20 million trees to combat climate change and support rural communities. He's a general partner at SOS Ventures and founded Rebel Bio, the world's first biotech accelerator. He lives as sustainably as possible on a small farm in Cork in Ireland and has not set foot in a plane for 10 years. So without further ado, we bring you Bill Liao.
1: Welcome, everyone. We'd like to introduce today's guest, Bill Liao, serial commercial and social entrepreneur, currently founder of Coda Dojo, WeForest, and partner at SOS Ventures, where they live by the mantra, making the impossible inevitable. Hi, Bill. Hi. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, There is a lot to get through in this interview, so we want to try um, and put some steer on it because you've had a a hell of a career. Um, So we want to focus on WeForest, Mm -hmm. then Rebel Bio, but I'd love to dig into how it began. I guess that starts with your education, but also um, a brilliant story I saw in one of your videos about your wife's donation to the World Hunger Project. Uh, (laughs) So if we can take you back to kind of the genesis of of you becoming what is sort of a serial entrepreneur now, where that began for you. Sure, well, I I think in part, it it started when I was, you know, in school,
2: Um, and that wasn't the good part, right? Because I was pretty, you know, brutally bullied as a, as a half Chinese Australian back in the 70s, that wasn't, was, it was great if you were Greek or Italian, but if you're half Chinese, that put a target on you. And so that was quite painful. And I dropped out of school really uh, when I was 17. And, you know, it took a long time to come back from that um, Asian parent,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: like do well at school, dropping out, not so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was quite nerdy, so I got into computers. That was helpful. At least I have an income. Uh, And you know, those times you look at you look at and you think, well, there's good times, bad times, and it's 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 tough when you don't have a degree and you don't have the stature that you might need to get ahead. You know, there's certainly. None of the tech companies back in the 70s would even look at you unless you had like maybe two PhDs in, in, in a relevant discipline. And in Australia, there was no you know, garage startup culture or anything. And so I spent a lot of time in dead-end jobs and uh, I think the best thing that happened to me was that, that I did marry my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, managed to as, as a geeky nerd, managed to, 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 to land a, a, good, a good person to be my life partner. And in part because I was interested in a thing called permaculture. And, I, and, and my wife says, you know, she, the reason she she went, oh, okay, maybe there's more to him is because I was talking about how to make sustainable things happen, like how to how to grow food and be independent. Um, I wasn't an environmentalist, but I was interested in growing stuff to some degree. And then I did a lot of personal development. I was working in a fairly dead-end job. And I realized through the personal development stuff, that the future that you actually set your heart on and commit to gives you a new reality in the present. Mm. It changes your actions. If you're authentic about it, you know, you can say, oh, I've got this big vision, and then, like most people, do nothing, and then it doesn't give you a new present. (laughs) Mm. If you give yourself a purpose, you set a new future, and you act authentically with integrity, you actually do what you said, and you, you know, persevere through the pain, your actions right now are changed. And that's a really fascinating thing, because that gives you an ability to shape who you are, not based on what's happened to you in the past, but based on where you're headed. Now that's cool. Now I thought that was really cool, but I didn't quite get it yet. And one day, my wife came home, because she did the same work with me. And Kerry's and amazing. And she came home and she said, oh, Bill, I've just been to a meeting of the Hunger Project. I'm like, oh, okay, what's that? And it says, it's amazing. They're empowering women to end hunger. And it's transformational. It's just like the personal development stuff we've done. And they've, they're creating new futures and they're speaking them out in the public. And I got so enthused, I just pledged $5,000 to them. <laughs> You've got to come and see them. Now, we had our first kid on the way, and we had, like, 30 grand in credit card debt. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, i got to come and see
3: these guys. I really
2: do. You pledged how much? <laughs> and, and I went there with her the next night, and I was, like, amazed. Yeah, they had three Indian village women who had come to Melbourne to assist in the fundraising. And these women had not seen electricity before (laughs) and here they were on a stage with a microphone talking through a translator about what they were committing to change in their village they were describing a future that they were committing to and you could see them practically changing in front of you like growing into this role and you know i checked up since they did what they said they were going to do but right then and there i was hugely inspired but of course i was freaking broke (laughs) And so I walked up to Lalita, who's the country director of India at the time, who'd come to Melbourne to fundraise. And, you know, she said, you've got to come on an investor trip. You've got to come and see what happens on the ground. And I said, that's all fantastic, but I've got no money. And she said, look, if you really seriously make a, a decent pledge, you know, think about what you can do in your future to fulfil on that. Imagine a future where you could pledge even more and deliver it without any suffering on your part. So like, I'm not asking you to hurt yourself for us. I'm asking you to grow yourself and be generous. And I, I sort of got that image, you know, in the tuxedo with the big fake check, <laughs> and thinking, yeah, yeah, that would be cool. And so I quit my job. And I went and I learned how to sell, because I knew that the salespeople made more money than I did. When you say, sorry,
1: quit your job, you mean, like, very soon afterwards? Immediately.
2: And I started my first business. And I went out and I learned how to sell. And at the same time as learning how to sell, I realized that the biggest gap in the market, you know, while I was selling, you know, stuff almost door-to-door, cold calling for for somebody else, I realized the biggest gap in the market was that engineers and geeks like myself didn't know how to sell. They couldn't sell. And i like if you're smart enough to code, Hmm. you should be smart enough to sell. And so I started that first business. I, you know, after learning how to sell and getting reasonably good at that, a lot of failure, I started that first business and it was a business coaching engineers how to sell stuff. And I did that for a while and then I sold that business uh, and I invested and put my time and became a co-founder of a telco in Melbourne in, in the late 90s at the boom. Uh, we did a reverse takeover gold mining company. We went from uh, two cents a share, which is what I got my stock at, to six bucks a share. We had a market cap of 1.2 billion US dollars at that point, which is like the fastest capital appreciation in the history of the mm. Australian stock market. And I went, wow, that's like complete shock. What, um, was time, what was the time to go there? Sorry, It was, it was the 90s. So I, like, at the time that I made my pledge to The Hunger Project, and I pledged 50 grand, I had just turned 30. And by the time I turned 31, I delivered 100 grand. And Jesus. then I kept investing.
1: And how, so what, how did you even keep up with your own reality at that point? Because that's just mind-bendingly different.
2: Do you remember the movie The Matrix? Yes. And you know that part where he says, there is no spoon? Yeah. That was literally our motto. There was like, there is no spoon. <laughs> you know, you can, you, like, it all just happened. And, and the really hard part is you get ahead of yourself. No doubt. Because, like, it's too easy for a bit.
1: But, like, like did you even manage to absorb the fact that you've become the fastest-growing listing on the Australian market? Like, You set a record that's not even just, like, having a company go, well, that's... <laughs>
2: it's, like, it's like strapping on the booster rockets, right? And it's all craziness. All crazy I like I understand more about capital markets than most people do now because mm. I've been through both the up cycle and the down cycle and the up cycle again because I've, I've you know been part of the founding team co-founded two unicorns not one mm. all right so we did Zing later on you know on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. I've seen it and it is a different world like the going public thing you know it's not very fashionable right now most people are like oh you know sell out to another company or whatever. Actually, the big game. Public companies are amazing. You can get a lot done with a public company.
0: And when you do that, how do you then reevaluate your view of your future self, such that your future self can still continue guiding you as an exemplar? Is it easy to do, or do you think oh, I've completed the game here?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that's a very good question. And the reality is that I think a lot of people, and myself included. Right, at, for a while you're like, uh, <laughs> "Is this re- like, yeah?" You'd... Did I get a ticket for this thing? <laughs> like, am I really here? Uh, and then some people just focus on the money, and I think you know you you look at there are some uh, pretty decent studies that show that if you focus just on money. And you and you increase your level of success and just focus on money and returns, you start to lose your empathy. Right. And I watched several people go off the rails. I've seen very successful people develop deep problems. Drug habits, uh, you know, sex addiction, blow their marriages apart, blow their families apart. And if you're think about empathy you know the difference between a psychopath a sociopath a uh, an aggressive narcissist and a good person mm. is really whether you're an empath or not you know your mirror neurons are working or they're not working if they're not working you're a kind of dangerous individual but also you could be as much harm to yourself as as society and so how do you keep empathy and i asked myself this question right? how do you stay how, do you, how does that future keep informing a present that's worthwhile? And the answer is, take on problems that are bigger than you. Take on problems that are bigger than anything that you can imagine. In fact, there's a kind of joy in taking on an enormous problem because it makes parking tickets look really inconsequential.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, did, did you have an absolute belief between company one and company two that you could execute and deliver that same result again? Because I think some people get breakout success and then I don't know if they are certain of their own credentials. And when you had done that and you went into your second enterprises, did you have a steadfast belief you could just be successful again?
2: I had a steadfast belief, and I still have a steadfast belief, that I can knuckle down and get the job done.
1: So the process.
2: The the grit. Uh, There's actually a great book called Grit. It's well worth reading. Uh, it's the number one correlate to success is your grit. As they they did a study at West Point and they looked at people. Like West Point's really hard, mm. right? You know you're gonna you, you're gonna see some serious shit if you go into West Point. You're gonna they're gonna pound you, and nothing correlated except for grit, the sheer will to pick yourself up after being punched in the face a few times, uh, and. You know, I didn't immediately go in from company one to company two. You know, I tried other stuff. I had a failed startup. I lost, you know, millions of dollars on that. I lost a million bucks uh, trying to to make a movie because I didn't understand the movie industry. And you have to, you know, get distribution. And if you don't get distribution money, you can never get your film distributed. Like, there's a whole lot of rules in a whole lot of different industries that you just have no clue about. And you, you wander in thinking, yeah, yeah, I could probably do this. And then you go, oh, geez, no, I can't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Expensive lessons. Yeah, well, they're, they're often the only way you learn them. You can think about it all the time until you, you feel it. D- Failure is actually the only way you really learn, yeah. which is why
2: examining somebody else's success is not particularly useful. It does make you feel really good though. It definitely does. And that's a problem because
1: the better you
2: feel, the less productive you tend to be.
1: <laughs> mm. With regards to grit, um, without kind of dipping into your, your childhood too much, is, is that where some of that came from, do you think?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, you know, staying sane and not becoming uh, a victim.
1: Yeah. You
2: know, it's very easy to start telling yourself that, you have an entitlement because somebody else has hurt you.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's the, the dark side of, of that mentality, is that you actually feel a sense of entitlement because you're the victim. Mm. All right? and, the, and society wants to reach out and help you. And you know, don't get me wrong, somebody hurts somebody else, the person doing the hurting is not in the right. <laughs> yeah, they deserve to be uh, you know, punished or put away or whatever. At the same time, if you, as the person who's being hurt, don't learn to forgive them, you're actually carrying that suffering with you. And that's a really stupid thing to do. <laughs> like the more you hold on to suffering, you know, the, the more you're not forgiving, the more you're hurting. Yeah. And the funny thing is, we think that the person who did the hurting, the person who, who did the damage, uh, if we don't forgive them, you know, that somehow they're punished by us holding on to the suffering. Uh hang hmm. on a second. They
1: don't, they don't care. <laughs> they that's that's really don't even know. Handed out like it's going out of style. Yeah,
2: exactly. So yeah. when you forgive them, you actually are letting up, letting go of your own suffering. Uh, and and if you do it really well, they find it very irritating. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: that's why all these questions are salient because you can come out of wild success with a chip on your shoulder and then you'll actually know better off. Yeah. You still want to prove something to the world and you you've proved a lot to yourself, but you can ruin everything around you. Um, what it was- also
2: doesn't feel any different. The, you know, three days after you've had your most successful success doesn't feel very different yeah. to three days before. Yeah. It also doesn't feel very different three days after your worst failure.
0: Mm. And, and what was the next um, impossible challenge that you, that you set yourself to give yourself a, a worthy future self to be?
2: So the purpose in life or the purpose that you have. You, know, you, you, you talked about SOS Ventures mm. uh, you know, our motto, if you like. It, it's actually a purpose statement. We, as general partners, sat around and we nutted out and we thought about what it is that we really wanted to see as a change in the world. And we set our purpose as making impossible things inevitable. Now, I'm a great believer in purposeful organizations. Everything that I do now, it's got to be purposeful. So my personal purpose is a world that works for all life. That's what gets me up in the morning. And every challenge that I take fits with the purpose. So the purpose is the inspiration that I've set. That's the future that I'm living into. And everything I do has got to align with that. Mm -hmm. And everything I do does. Mm -hmm. I mean, the impossible to inevitable, the SOSV fund, those things all contribute towards a world that works for life.
1: Yeah. And so when was um, SOSV set up?
2: So Sean uh, O'Sullivan, it's SOSV, Sean O'Sullivan, right. um, set up SOSV oh, 15, 20 years ago, something like that. You know, he invented moving maps. Right? You, 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 you've seen Google Street View and all that. He invented moving maps. Right. They had this thing called MapFlow. Right. And he took that public and he got an exit and... He invested that pretty wisely. So the fund started as a family office and it grew. (laughs) He turned, I think, like 15 million into well over 150, 200 million. And then he started collecting people like me to actually build the fund up. We did fund one, was his. Primarily I did a little investing in fund one. We did fund two to get our first limited partner, which was in Ireland. And then we've raised fund three and now we're raising fund four. So it's been a continuous growth.
1: Christ, and and so you joined that. um, What was your inclination or mandate to be involved? And did you start off as a silent investor into the fund and then joined as a general partner? No, I went straight in as a general
2: general partner because you know, particularly in Ireland, where Sean was living at the time, he now lives in Princeton. He was looking around at so many investment opportunities and he didn't didn't have time, and he was like, well, you've a good investment tracker I ran a small fund in Switzerland as well uh, and and we got we you know we, we met each other and the, you know it was kind of cool little pond in Ireland and we, we you know we, we got along really well and we're still obviously great friends and we you know, got together and we started investing and uh, we had some early successes there was a company called Storyful by a, a journalist in Ireland called Mark Little and we sold that to uh, News Corp for 21 mil and you know, did a few others, a company, gaming company in in uh, Romania called Maven Hut. Maven, and, yeah. you know, was, uh, we had a big big partial exit there, and you know a few other interesting things, and then one of our core businesses um, that he set up with one of the other partners, Cyril, was a, is a, is a hardware accelerator called Hacks, hmm. and that's in Shenzhen in China, and Hacks is uh, yeah we had China accelerator and Hacks and Hacks is been you know a huge success you know like i think nine out of the ten top kickstarters ever are hacks companies you know it's like really you you, you know it it might be a little different to that number but it's big right we've got many multi-million dollar kickstarters which are rare and they're hacks companies and um you know my daughter uh developed type 1 diabetes when she was 12 and uh, so, about, uh, she's nineteen now. So it would have been seven years ago, and I was devastated by that. And you know, she nearly died. And I was looking at at the biotech side of things. And you know, I'd had some biotech experience in the past as a microscopist, and I was like. A what, a what? Sorry. Microscopist, somebody who looks down a microscope. Okay. Right. <laughs> and um, you, you have a tally You count stuff. What,
1: what was, were you looking
2: at? Uh, I was looking at laser scanning fiber optic confocal microscopy images of chips and then of cells that were bi- were fluorescent. Don't ask. <laughs> 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 anyway, so I was looking. At, I, was, I was looking at at the condition and. You know, we live on a little organic farm, just a small holding in West Cork, right by the sea. We're pretty, you know, idyllic sort of place to live. And we're kind of self-sufficient. Like, you know, we have geese and chickens and we grow asparagus and zucchinis. And, and here my daughter has this malady where we are completely defend, dependent on the industrial farmer complex. Like, 100%. She doesn't have insulin for a few days, she's done. And so I'm looking at this going, well, can I make this stuff? And, you know, six years ago when I looked at it first, it would have cost me a couple of million bucks to put together a lab to make insulin that she could inject. Clearly not a home operation. (laughs) And I kept looking at it though because I was interested and I noticed that the cost of the equipment was coming down incredibly fast. And so within, you know, less than two years, it was a couple of hundred grand. I'm like, wow, that's democratization. That's fast, and so I did this little plot of of um, Moore's law versus the cost of sequencing, and Moore's law looks like a flat line because sequencing cost came down ten million fold in the previous twelve years to when I was looking. It's even cheaper now. Yeah, and I'm like you you see a a cost decrease like that in an incredibly high tech. You know, industry that's universally applicable. You got to kind of pay attention. And so I went to the partners, the other partners, and I went to Sean and I said, "Guys, w- we need to do a biotech accelerator." And he was like, "Huh?" <laughs> I'm like, "No, no, really, seriously, look at this." And um, so we did it. Uh, like, you know, we're quite an entrepreneurial firm, so we test stuff. We mm. we, we move fast. We break stuff. We tried. So we did in o four we we did this we put together that first accelerator it was the first biotech accelerator in the world, and we got thirty applications we took six companies, four of those companies still exist today and are doing well like and one of them perfect day, you know they just raised twenty five million on a sixty million valuation and they make milk without cows.
1: Cool how, how?
2: They modify yeast to produce all the components of milk and then they harvest those components. And they and and it's it is identical, like not even a close. It's actual milk without a cow.
1: Because mm. even the dairy industry is under attack. Because people criticise the meat industry, but you, the bad practices extend to lots yeah. of industrialised farming. So that's yeah. um, is that out for consumption?
2: Uh, perfect day. They're making the components in kilo amounts right now, and uh, I suggest that it'll be showing up in products. Early, uh, like late this year, early next year. I know they're scaling up to do tons right now.
0: And what about the insulin? Did you did you find a company that's?
2: So it's interesting. In the last batch of Rebel Bio we had in Cork, we have a company called Cellfree, and they were able to make proto insulin for about ninety nine bucks. That's getting very close. So not a lot more, like you know. Thousands, not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, not millions to to make insulin. And uh, it's going to get even cheaper. You know, there is no global grand challenge that cannot yield to biotechnology as a solution. Mm. And whether you're talking about health, whether you're talking about environment, whether you're talking about manufacturing, whether you're talking about computers, entertainment, you name it, there is a biotech solution for pretty much anything you can think of.
0: What's your view on CRISPR?
2: CRISPR is amazing. Uh, I have a company called Cygenica, which makes a tiny little molecule that can penetrate cells without harming them. And right now they're working to bond CRISPR to that little molecule. And that will mean that you can do a CRISPR task on a living cell inside a living organism while it's alive, without harming it, you could change its DNA on the fly. Uh, CRISPR gives you the precision. Mm. Sequencing tells you what to, to change. We've, we've already talked about how cheap se- sequencing is. And mm. now we have this little molecule from Cygenica, which is basically a universal delivery device. And uh, already, you know, some people have had their cancer cured with CRISPR. You know, yeah. the, the CAR T therapy, you take out the insula- you take out the immune cells, you modify them with CRISPR, you reinject inject them, and you go into remission and several people have actually had that therapy. The problem has been that that therapy is very expensive mm-hmm. and it takes a long time. There are three companies in Rebel Bio and in Indie Bio uh, across them that have solutions to all the problems that, that, that make CRISPR expensive and difficult. So we're gonna see an absolutely massive revolution in everything to do with health um, and, and starting yesterday.
1: Somebody in a talk I watched in the Next Web called Jason Silver said um, that innovations in this space were growing three times exponential. Mm-hmm. He said there's an exponential curve, and, and what we're charting is that we're going through the code bases of DNA. We're just accelerating at a rate we've never seen, which I guess if we look back to the computer and Moore's law, you'd be crazy n- if you saw that evidence not jump into that industry with keen interest.
2: And, and let's face it, it beats cat videos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're a coder you know, DNA is digital DNA itself is digital right? so you could actually it's like machine code you can code in DNA there are companies like in London I'm invested in a company called Synthase mm-hmm. they have written a uh, high level language an abstraction layer to go on top of DNA it's called Antha and so if you can script you can actually code in DNA. And we have companies that can take that code and like there's a, a company in Austria that we invested in, it's called KillerBaser. You can take that code and you can load it into the KillerBaser and the KillerBaser will make those oligos for you overnight on a desktop. On so a it, prints, desktop.
1: it prints? It prints, prints
2: DNA, right? Wow. And you can take those oligos and you can take uh, Drop Genie and you can actually put them directly into their lab on chip and you can do a CRISPR transformation. Uh, you know, the whole supply chain, everything could fit on, on this desk. Hmm.
0: But do you have any concerns over the applications that this could be put to? I mean obviously there's the the healthcare stuff which is great.
2: But uh, you know, you want to kill a lot of people. You just make ricin. It's totally lethal. It is Fairly easy to make. It's a bad idea, right? If you want to kill a lot of people, you know, go down and collect some Ebola samples and and, and aerosolize them. There's lots of but, ways to kill people. You don't need.
0: Okay, but what if what if you this tech? What if we identified it. the DNA that um, was responsible for intelligence? Say so that we could do that. Then there's a cost to very have, hard. To okay, okay, but just just hard. just indulge <laughs> indulge me. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so then we could. Uh, it would, there would be a cost involved with having your intelligence increased by having your DNA changed. You then create two sorts of people, the people who could afford the intelligence boost by having the CRISPR and the people who couldn't. Now that is a scary situation.
2: Ah, yeah. here's the question. That future is inevitable. It's already going to happen. The question how do you is, solve? How, the question is, how do you make it cheap enough so that anyone can do it? Mm-hmm. The question is, how do you keep that you know, around for everyone? And and the answer is things like KillerBaser, where, you know, somebody could set up a lab and they can do it and they can download it and there's a big open source library. The other answer is open source.
1: Right. You know, so you're saying the so other
2: you've got, you've got other you've got other uh, initiatives in open source. I'm a big fan of open source. And so if you democratize this technology enough and everyone has it, then it doesn't become the purview of the very expensive. I mean, right now we have that, Problem where only somebody who has three hundred thousand dollars can guarantee cure their leukemia without side effects. Mm. All right, I'm sorry that problem exists right now. Sure. The, the haves mm, and the have yeah. not totally. How do you leapfrog? You know, a have not to a have. Democratization of the technology, and you know, this is one of the huge opportunities for Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, where you've actually got quite a lot of calories hitting the planet. Mm but you've got some problems with water, you've got some problems with medicine, you've got some problems with education, you've got some problems with vitamins. These are all things that you could solve so much more easily if you have really good biotechnology that's democratized.
1: And it might masquerade as something else because if, let's say, producing insulin is driving the costs down, then actually you're driving down the costs of going to killer base, you're driving down the costs of people who can code in this, this DNA language, and then I guess as soon as you need to turn the hand something else, it's like a web developer who develops in React and can build. E- exactly. And a
2: web developer who could develop in React can also start to develop in DNA. Mm. And that's what's cool. You know, the problem we have actually is we just don't have enough developers full stop. I mean, that's why I co-founded Coder Dojo is because, you know, seven years ago when I looked, yeah, because I was always wondering, why is it as a VC, I have so many people come to me with marketing degrees and MBAs hmm. and no coders? Because it's hard. And I'm like, well, you know, it's actually not that hard. <laughs> right, but why, why? And, and the answer is this, the reason it's hard is because it's a language skill. Yeah. And your best time to learn a language, five to 17. By the time you get to college, it's a real struggle to get really fluent in a new language. And yet, when I looked around seven years ago, there was not one single school I could find anywhere, including Silicon Valley, where they were teaching eight-year-olds how to code. The prime time to learn that language skill, no one was exposing them to it. The only people who were getting exposed to it were people like myself who learned in their backyard, which is not a great place to learn. And so we created Code Dojo literally with the focus on empowering, particularly women, mm. particularly young girls, to have access to this incredible ability to make stuff. And that incredible ability to make stuff is only going to get more incredible with biotech. Mm. You know, if if you if you can program a, a CNC machine to make an object, that's great. If you can program a bacteria to make the same object but nearly for free, that's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind is is baked into the ethos of Coda Dojo. Um, an awareness of the problems that the kids may want to focus their attention on, or is it just practical skills? It's pretty and, hard to tell a five-year-old. <laughs> but just maybe some some, some ethics or you, stuff you can get them excited about, because I remember as a kid it was very important to me what um, I looked up to.
0: I think if I could code
1: snake2 when I was a kid, I'd be pretty happy. It's definitely better than where we are now, where I definitely can't code snake2. <laughs>
2: exactly. Here's the thing. There's one rule for kids in Code Dojo. There's some rules for the adults, mm. but there's one rule for kids in Code Dojo. Because when, when we created it, I, it, it was my job to come up with the branding, the logo, the name, and, and you know, the, the rule set, the context within which you want the emergent phenomena. And it, learning is an emergent phenomena. Mm. Right? So unless you create the context within which it can emerge, not going to happen. And so, you know, you talk about corporate culture all the time. That's actually just how you be about stuff. And how you be about stuff is set by the context. Those are emergent properties. So I was looking at those emergent phenomena and I was thinking, how do you create a rule set that creates context sufficient to get kids to be inspired by it and yet also know what the boundaries are? Because it's the edge conditions that also test you. Yep. And I looked at you know, all the different youth organizations and I noticed this one amazing trend, right? All of the rules that I could find were negative prescriptive. Now, I know as a parent, the last thing you wanna do if you want a kid to not do something is tell them not to do it, right? That's like a recipe for disaster. So I thought, well, what if we make all the rules of Coda Dojo positive, aspirational? And so we did. And we started with you know, 10 different rules, and we looked at them, and we thought, well, actually, a lot of the stuff that those rules say, you could bake down, you could crash down into one rule or two rules. So we got down to three rules, and then we got down to two rules, and then we thought, well, wow, all the stuff that we don't want is just kind of uncool. Hmm. Why don't we just make it one rule? Be cool.
1: And it worked. <laughs> so they also because it gives them room to define it themselves. Yeah, exactly. Which is you need the imagination.
2: Exactly, and it and it is just it's taken off like wildfire. Yeah,
1: where is it at today? Because I read some pretty impressive stats.
2: I think we added another 360 dojos just in the last six months. So uh, we're at you know a couple of thousand dojos, and then there's Code Club, which is also our partner. There's there's 10,000 of those in schools. Uh, We're in I think 96 countries now, and and by the way, one of the things about that I learned in this journey is the power of language if you get good language you know you brand things well and you you can articulate them well you become a thing much faster and much cheaper so when we started Coda Dojo we got the name and we did some testing and we you know we'd been doing it for about three months and then we opened the next dojo and we copycatted and we cloned all the language we looked at you know what were some of the fundamental things that were going to drive adoption? And we realized that if you charge for learning, you actually create an inequality. And so we, we made it resolutely free, free forever free. And we were like, well, if it's free forever free, how on earth are we going to afford to, to, to have it expand? And we took a gamble on just making the language really easy. And we got to 127 dojos in 27 countries without even opening a bank account. How does that work? For volunteers? <laughs> all volunteerism. All. Volu- and, and I might add, about $100 million worth of computer consultancy if you just added up all the coders who donated their time. At that time. Mm. I, mean, I, I can't even imagine how much it's worth now. And we've had... Coda dojos uh, at the U.S. State Department. We've had Coda dojos in Buckingham Palace. We've had Coda dojos, uh, you know, all over the world in, in, in Pune, in India, in, in a village where they didn't have electricity. They had a dojo that ran CS Unplugged, which is the Computer Science Unplugged curriculum, and they were doing binary with sticks, and it all worked, and it still works, and it's expanding. And we merged with Raspberry Pi Foundation last year. Wow. And, uh, you know, we we've just continuing to expand that whole that that whole area
1: what's their involvement with you or just allowing people to code onto raspberry pi
2: raspberry pi foundation is an educational foundation the the raspberry Pis, the money from the the business actually goes to the charitable foundation and they acquired code club and then we merged in code dojo so we're actually now combined the largest coding for kids organization on planet earth and you know kind of happy with that
3: hmm.
1: but it's a pretty good legacy it's yeah. a very powerful legacy of yeah. people are coding our genomes in the future All in your identity is sensei liao <laughs> on the walls
2: it's not just down to me it's down to all
1: the people i mean it's yeah. like
2: i cannot take credit for all this it's yeah you know, yes i'm one of the founders of Coded Audio, but you know even upton jack lang all these great guys at raspberry pi philip colgan um you know james welton my co-founder uh, Justina Mizoni, you know, all these people that put all their time and effort into all this stuff. It's just great that it works, though. Mm.
1: It's, it's so, so empowering. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish I wish it was around when we were kids. Well, um,
2: you know, for 15 years, which is, like, literally... The, my brother is 15 years younger than me. So for 15 years, there's been a gap where virtually no one has gotten any kids to learn how to code and that was just stupid like just plain dumb how did how did it happen that one of the most powerful skills that you could possibly learn was completely erased from the educational curriculum for more than a decade how can that be i i I mean i homeschooled my kids right Hmm. uh because i had a few issues with schools now i don't actually have that much against schools, but like, I thought I could do a better job with my kids. and most people think that, that's, that they're okay, right? So you know the jury's still out, but uh, <laughs> you know they, they seem to be pretty good kids. I didn't even realize that the coding curriculum had been erased until, you know, I, as a VC, I just kept getting frustrated, and then young James Welton walks into my office one day. And goes, I'd like some money for my startup. And I'm like, great, James. Um, who's in your startup? What, what, what's the team? And he said, well, there's three coders, including myself. And I'm like, hang on. You haven't even done your leaving certificate in Ireland. How do you have three coders hmm. when the last seven startups didn't have one between them? <laughs> and he said, well, I taught them. I'm like, what do you mean you taught them? He said, well, you know, I won, I was. I learned in my bedroom and I won a web award and... Over the school PA system, I was congratulated for winning the web award by the school you know, headmaster. And all these kids sought me out, not to beat me up as a nerd, but to beg me to teach them how to make a web page. And he did. He ran a lunchtime club. And I was like, great. That's amazing. You must be so proud and happy. He said, no, I'm actually really miserable, because I've just done my Leaving Cert, and they're shutting the club down because there's no one to run it. Right. And this is one of the best schools in Ireland. There's a private school, you know, James's parents are both dentists, private school, mm. good school. Didn't have anyone who could run even a computer club. That was seven years ago. And at that moment those two worlds collided, right? I'm like a VC with no coders anywhere. And what you mean they don't teach it in schools? <laughs>
1: It's unreal. <laughs> I mean, when you, because we just take it as a given that these things... Because there's so many of the courses um, online now that you've seen yeah. that everybody's been given a democratised approach. But, you know, who knows um, what the outcomes of... online courses on any syllabuses, though, in no.
2: It's just been added in Ireland to the junior certificate. It's just been added. And the, the, I think that it's going to make a leaving certificate thing. I'm not sure that schools are a great place to learn languages anyway. Mm. Um, nevertheless everyone should get the exposure. They should get some taste of it. Even if somebody goes to a Coda Dojo for one hour, they will never again look at a computer and think the computer can say no to me. Hmm. And that is valuable even of itself because the number of people I see go, oh, computer says no, <laughs> to, to quote a uh, comedy routine. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, there's, there's a genuine fear of technology yeah. because yeah. people don't understand. Yeah. And, and like computers... Are very prosaic. Here's the thing: DNA is very prosaic when you get right down to it. Right. There's layer and layer of complexity. There's you know you can you can do ten doctoral degrees and not get to the end of it. But still, at the end of the day, it's a very simple set of instructions.
1: But it's funny because now it's not computer says no. Yeah. With that problem, it's is it even genome says no? It's like it, our our suspicion of of what our relationship with that technology is will be even more abstracted, I guess because it's it's not just a machine that you switch on and off and then can com- use as a sand pit. It's potentially genetic code, which, mm-hmm. I mean, God, uh, the, 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 the possibilities, as you say, are endless. Um,
2: uh, have you flown on an airplane recently? I have. Did you pay any attention to the code base of the autopilot? I did not. Your life was depending on it? Heavily, yeah. Yeah. Did you care? Did you even think about it?
1: I was on a stack day. <laughs> so
3: <laughs>
2: you couldn't think about it <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wasn't allowed to think about <laughs> but look, thing. At the to- look at the time before you flew look at any time you've flown in fact yeah. any time in your life you've flown have you thought about the code base of the autopilot
1: no I All am right. aware that the planes <laughs> do a lot of their own flying and it's as good as a nominal oversight that, that humans are able to afford it now But
2: a lot of the planes do better flying than humans ever will still you don't really care Yeah. as long as it works you don't really care I mean Look at the disaster. Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, all oh, the world is ending, all oh, the elections are being thrown, blah, 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 blah. How much actual change has there been?
1: Well, and what you're showing, I think, that is part of my argument to people who feel that we're uh, just running down the lazy river of politics, sending us on our way, is that you can take agency. And I think one thing I'm taking heart from with your stories is you can empower people to pass knowledge on to other people for a good cause,
2: taking agency is really important. And that's the difference. That's the thing that has us have a potentially bright future from all this, is enough people taking agency. Both the democratisation and the learning, not education, learning of these skills. That's what gives me some hope. You know, if we were to have a significant outbreak of of a pandemic pathogen, a new one, it'll probably be somebody hacking at that that gets a cure out faster in five or six years' time. Mm. That could save us all. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much up for that future. Mm. Um, the future where you know we're all afraid of technology, well, I'm not so sure we're all afraid of technology because we've had some pretty bad things happen. Kind of, that's okay, we're not terrified.
0: Mm. Speaking of the future and, and taking agency and collective action, um, probably a good good moment to pass on to to climate change. Mm. Um, and of, it's it's surprising with everything else that we've just discussed that you have time to worry about this too. Um, so tell us a bit about how We Forest got started.
2: So I was doing some work for uh, the government of Saint Kitts and Nevis, mm. and they suggested that they might like me to participate in some UN negotiations for me. And I didn't, for them, right? And I didn't really take it all that seriously. And then I ended up with a diplomatic passport. (laughs) And, uh, which I I can show you later if you like. (laughs) Um, And I ended up in the UN talking about climate. And I was like, um, as I said before, I wasn't really an environmentalist, but I was a homeschooler. And so in order to prep for this, I was sitting down in front of a computer with my daughter, who at the time was nine-ish, eight or nine, and we were going through all the news about climate change and all the readily accessible stuff. And she looked up at me at one point and she said, Daddy, you broke the planet. You better fix
1: it. The 80s definitely did some damage to the planet. I don't know if that was your hand, but yeah.
2: Hey, listen, my generation, uh, you know, if you count... Sort of my generation as being anyone who is sort of born between like 1960 and 1975, we've done more damage to the planet than every other generation of humans combined.
0: Even the ones, so the subsequent ones?
2: Everyone. Right.
0: Screw, screw you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I, I,
2: take, I, I, I resemble that remark. And so my view is rather than making it my daughter's problem, yeah. I want to fix it before she has to inherit it or you have to inherit it. Now, I looked around because when I started this, I'm like, wow, this is really miserable. Bleak. Bleak, bleak, bleak. And here's the problem. When you tell a human that it's all going to turn to shit. What's the first thing they do? Head in the
1: sand. Yeah, yeah they deny the it. Yeah. All
2: right, so the environmental movement up until that point had done a really spectacular job of
1: creating the largest denial movement in history. Because they, they did a big move to park electric vehicles in the 70s. wasn't oh, it the oil embargo. Yeah, yeah. Oh. so it was emerging and oh. they deny... And they
2: got all killed. It all got killed. It's so easy to get people afraid and... Of the message, and then to deny everything. So when I was looking at this, you know, as tuned into language as I am, and as sensitive to how you structure context, I looked at it and went, "There is just no positive message here. There's just none." You know, and when you look at the numbers, you know, a, a lot of the interventions that sort of work are kind of really pathetic. Uh, you know, there's there's Like, for instance, recycling plastic. Mm. Recycling plastic, yes, there's a sort of net benefit there. A lot of people just want to turn plastic into fuel. Well, then you burn it and it ends up as carbon in the atmosphere. Your net benefit's very small. You're kind of better off burying it again. (laughs) And then it might turn back into oil. (laughs) But nobody is going to advocate landfill for plastic. So a lot of the interventions are... They don't make sense. You, do, you just do the numbers and they are like, eh. <laughs> so what do you do? And so I set about abusing my diplomatic powers. <laughs> I, went, I went and I rang people and you know, I said, oh, listen, I'm with the prime minister's office <laughs> and I'd be interested in hearing a, a, you know, a layman's explanation of your research. <laughs> and it's surprising how many people, when they hear the words prime minister's office, even though it's a tiny island state, you don't have to say that, but you just say Prime Minister's office. They tell you everything. And after enough research, I discovered this one very interesting little fact. Trees make clouds. Now, growing up as I did, one of the biggest fears wasn't climate change. It was a thing called a nuclear winter. A nuclear winter happens when you have... A nuclear battle Hmm. that blows particulate matter into the atmosphere and you get clouds. And the clouds block out the sunlight and you freeze the planet Hmm. and everybody dies. And I thought to myself, well, if nuclear bombs can create enough cloud that you will destroy civilization, surely... If there's a gentler way of making clouds, you could cool the planet down because clouds reflect sunlight. And when I first did it, when I first did the numbers and I was talking to some of the modelers, I got a lot of denial. So first thing was I would go to foresters and I'd say, hey, did you know that trees make clouds? And they'd go, yeah, we know trees make clouds. It's very clear they create, uh, you know, polyaromatic hydrocarbons that go into the air and they have little bacteria, microbiology. You know, they have aerobacterogenes that sweep up into the atmosphere and these things seed clouds better than anything man-made. So we know, we've got all these images of low level cloud cover forming over forests in high temperatures. Which is where you really need to stimulate clouds is the hot spots, the equator. So I'm like, great, that's fantastic. Do you know we could cool the whole planet that way? And they're like, oh no, I don't think the models would work. I don't. It's a local effect. And so I I go, well, who are the best climate models? And well, the Oceanographic Institute's are very good at climate models. So I go to the Oceanographic people and I go like. Guys, do you know that if you make enough clouds, you could cool the planet down? And they said, yeah, yeah, we did all that modelling for the nuclear winter. And you know what? We have this multi-trillion dollar project where we're going to float giant ships onto the ocean and spray water into the air and cool (laughs) the planet down. And it's only going to cost $100 trillion. I'm like, that's great. But did you know that trees can make clouds? And they're like, nah. Mm -hmm. And so after many years, the IPCC and the UN process, which takes 12 years for science to get Recognized After many years, the IPCC said, yeah, actually, well, trees actually can mitigate climate change. It took 12 years. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, the UN's not going to fix it. <laughs> so why don't we start a charity to fix it? Why don't we start planting trees? And I'd already worked with the Hunger Project. So I knew a lot about how you can interact with local peoples to do positive things. Mm. And the fact is, a tree has to be worth more alive to them than dead. And it's not just because you pay them. Like, you know, a lot of people donated money for trees and they did this greenbelt thing and all the rest of it, all those trees got cut down for charcoal, right? Because they were, they were not valuable to the local people and they were very happy to get another lot of donations to plant more trees, so let's clear off these and plant some more, no, no. You've got to have the trees valuable. And that means you've got to create a thing called a food forest. You've got to actually have trees that create crops You've got to use a thing called permaculture. Hmm. Remember way back when I talked about <laughs> yeah. permaculture, yeah. and I can promise you that a village headwoman is going to cut her husband's nuts off before he cuts her nut tree down. <laughs> All right, value the tree, make it valuable. So we started WeForest. Um, you know, after coming across this research, a guy called Walter Jane in Australia, we uh, planted our first ten thousand trees as a sort of token effort. And I realized that we also needed a supply chain because you need to get the cost of the tree down. We need to do better modeling. Um, I went and talked to Ted, and by, at that time I said, okay, it's 2 trillion trees that we need and I'll commit to doing that. And I swore off flying back then until we could you know, plant a meaningful number of trees or I could, until I could get an airline to plant trees. And uh, so far, I haven't got an airline to plant trees. I'm maybe close. <laughs> it's been 10 years since I set foot in an aircraft. And what, um, how
1: do you get back to Australia? I don't go back to Australia. <laughs> I live in West Cork. Christ. I've
2: crossed the Atlantic by freighter like multiple times. Uh, I got here by the ferry and the train. It takes me 12 hours door to door. I'm here every week during Rebel bio. I do, do that back and forth. It's painful. I'm really looking forward to flying again. and yes, <laughs> I know about autopilot coding and I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I need to I set myself 100 million trees now or um, an air, airline planting trees with us. It turns out we need 187 billion trees to actually end global warming, as far as I can tell. Uh, And we've gotten it down from $10 for a sustainable tree to one pound, a sustainable tree. So for less than 200 billion pounds, Mm. you could actually end global warming, which costs us half a trillion pounds Every year in storm damage.
1: And more. And the rest. getting on on its way.
2: Yeah, uh, and the rest on its way. So here is a positive message. Plant enough trees, you can actually fix the problem.
0: In the right places. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, in the right
2: places. Now, we actually have more trees on Earth now than we did 30 years ago. Mm. But they're in the wrong places. Well, they're in good places, but they're not in the perfect place. The perfect place is the deforested land around the equator. Trees restore the water cycle. You see... Rainforests don't grow where it rains. It rains where there are rainforests. The Sahara Desert, you know, they they have the mystery of the pyramids. How could you construct pyramids, move these big stone blocks because there wasn't enough timber to move them around? Actually, there was. It was a rainforest. And they cut it down, and it turned into a desert. The whole Sahara Desert was once a rainforest, and humans cut down the trees.
1: It's funny. I think our inability to understand that is we don't give historical man enough credit for their ability to have cut down trees and wipe out species they were pretty good at Oh, we're industrial
2: a, we're an amazing predator mm. like just amazing you want to wipe out a species yeah. come to humanity we're good at that
0: yeah I mean isn't it you could a squirrel could go from land's end to John O'Groats without touching the ground yep 100, yep. 100 years 100 years ago or not
1: not that long ago <laughs> not yeah. that
2: long ago the whole of Ireland was an oak forest Like literally the whole thing, except where it was bog. It was bog or oak forest.
1: We went down to 7% and I think we're back up to
0: about 11 or 12 now. But then I think a fact about that that surprises me is that none of that was old forest. All of that was actually planted. The same as all the forests in Europe. Um, They're all planted forests. The only old forests left are in certain parts of North America and, and I think obviously the rainforest.
2: Small parts of Europe have wild apples. Right and wild bits of forest there are little holdouts of mm. wild forest but actually most of it's planted timber yeah and we absolutely you know there's like four and a half billion unemployed people sitting right next to 20 million square kilometers of degraded land that could all be turned into forest very cost effectively um you know the 20 million trees that we'll have planted by sort of any day now i think we're at 17 million but we've got we were about to announce twenty million. We've we've got them in the bank. Um, yeah, they have not cost more than twenty million bucks. So we've proved the supply chain model, right? And a lot of people buy our uh, trees to as a marketing thing. Like mm. we love the marketing department. Who doesn't want a tree? Yeah. It's so tangible. And. Uh, yeah, we have campaigns like buy two, get one tree. <laughs> yeah, <You know? laughs> in Ireland, that'll go down a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about buy two, get one tree is you actually make more profit on the sale because you're bundling and you're not, you're halving your customer acquisition cost. Yeah. So you can profitably do this, you can lift women out of poverty, you can lift villages out of poverty, you can restore wildlife habitat, you can restore rainfall, and you can end global warming. All with a very, very simple intervention. Mm.
0: Is it? But I mean, if they're permaculture um, trees, mm-hmm. then presumably they're not like the the grand old trees that you find in rainforests. But do they have the same effect?
2: They do have the same effect. Um, it you know the the their food forests is what we're looking for, and you have local species as well as you put in. I mean, we would never introduce a species that wasn't already in a country, but we would certainly you know. Mobilise what species we can that are going to deliver income. Because mm-hmm. your alternative is a whole bunch of dead trees. Yeah. right. A whole bunch of cut charcoal. Fires. Make, yeah, because if you don't make it valuable, if you don't make it part of the solution for the local people, then you're doing them a disservice and it's not going to last.
1: Yeah. Can you help by... Um, or do you think the trend towards, let's say, cheaper renewable f- fuel sources will help them not cut down trees for... for Biofuel? Maybe. 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 Every little Uh, helps.
2: Every little helps. Uh, I'm much more interested in them growing food forests and relying on the calories that those food forests produce to actually lift them out of poverty.
1: How do you map that when you think of 200 billion trees? Because clearly a food forest may become so um, successful that there's there's a glut of supply again. They're incentivized to start cutting down trees again. So is there a way you can? Model where best to focus your attentions.
2: You know, there's so many people who are living so poorly mm. that the demand for those extra calories not going away anytime soon. Right. And let's face it, our agricultural miracle isn't all that it's cracked up to be. You know, you can feed four and a half people off an acre of wheat sustainably. But it's a pretty boring diet. Mm. Even though we've, we've found ways of making wheat and corn into just about any foodstuff you can imagine, <laughs> it's still basically wheat or corn. It takes 10 calories of oil to make one calorie of corn or one calorie of wheat. That's not very sustainable. In an acre of food forest, you can feed 10 people forever. You don't need any oil input. You just need a little bit of work from on their behalf. And it's far less work if it's a permaculture system than the calories they get out. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we've won when people want to move from London to Zambia because the lifestyle and the food and the fulfilment is actually better. Mm. You live a better life there. What do you need for that? You need first quality telecommunications because we like our entertainment. And you need amazing healthcare. Well, half of healthcare is diet. It really is. And the remainder can be done with the democratization of biotechnology.
1: So to get you from this 20 million trees onwards, obviously an airline would help. Um, You're suggesting things are picking up and and speeding up. Um, How is that going to look in the next couple of years for you? Um, Are you quite optimistic?
2: I'm reasonably optimistic. We've managed to double our planting. Not the total number of trees planted, but the number we plant, we've doubled every year. Wow, All right? So for 10 years we've been doubling. you know, okay, not for 10 years, nine years. The first year we didn't double because we just did those 10,000 trees, mm. and we had no idea what we were doing. They're still there, mm. but it was like totally unsustainable. It was like 10 grand a tree, 10,000 trees. Just no. But since then, we've doubled our planting every year. And uh, if we continue on that trend, when you double things yeah you, you know that's exponential growth. Now we are not precious about this everything we do is open source. we want everyone to copy us we want other organizations and NGOs to be doing this we want corporates to be doing this we want massive tree planting and we want to lift lots and lots of people out of poverty doing it.
1: Are you collecting some of the localized data that you can start to um, produce reports on studies on oh yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: we have uh, local data, we have satellite data. Um, you know, European Space Agency has been quite kind to us. Uh, we have uh, WhatsApp groups and WeChat groups um, and you know, you can actually see real-time stuff happening. You know, you can track trees, we can track the tree to the location if we need to. Yeah, all of that data, you know, we love data. I mean, I'm a data guy, so.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and we had a guest who came in talking about um, commercial drone flights can you get um, anything like that like drone technology to keep an eye on the forests and take surveys and stuff like that
2: look there are a couple of people out there who are wanting to plant, mass plant trees using drones and mm-hmm. more power to them uh, my only concern with that is you need to involve people you know, if you don't involve local people on the ground we have we do a lot of train the trainer we do a lot of you know, local involvement, we go, we, we're not arrogant, we're not prescribing things to people, we, we're offering learning. Mm. Just like Coda Dojo, we're offering people to learn how to do this better, and then we're offering cash to help them get there, right? On a per tree basis. That's a very um, different model to flying a drone over somebody else's land. And dropping trees on them, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know. um, which is fine if you get permissions and all the rest of it, more power to you. But those trees, I feel, may not be as secure as the ones that people have grown with their hands and that they harvest every month.
0: Yeah. Um, do you view climate change as the, the biggest threat to humanity, civilization?
2: It's the most immediate yeah. mass threat. Yeah. yeah. So I, that uh, goes uh,
1: ahead of AI or anything like that?
2: Oh, AI doesn't bother me at all. Cool. I know, like we have, we, you know, we have made enormous progress on artificial intelligence we've made no progress on artificial sentience I mean none like nothing you know, and until it's sentient it is not able to consider us a threat mm. there's no reason for it and the best definition of sentience I've seen is being able to suffer not really in our interest to create a machine that suffers.
1: No, no. So, so it is climate change that's your, your biggest concern?
2: There are some things we can't do much about. You know, an asteroid could hit us, that's hard. Uh, we already talked about pandemics and how I think we can deal with that. Climate change is the hardest one to deal with. I mean, one meter of sea level rise displaces, you know, 20 million refugees. Uh, look at how badly we're coping with the refugee crisis we have right now and multiply that by 20, mm. yeah. you know, or 30.
1: Well, St. Kitts and Neves would be in a lot of trouble if the sea level starts going up, I guess.
2: Uh, one metre of sea level rise would actually do a lot more damage to central London, if you think about it. metre, mm. metre of rise. That's well within our lifetimes that's possible. Yeah,
0: Florida, famously. What well, yeah, well, Florida? Yeah. Well, but, yeah.
2: but New York. Yeah. You know, downtown Manhattan is not that far above sea level. And you can't think about it in terms of, oh, okay, it goes up a meter, but, you know, it's still not there. One meter, then the storm surge it's on top yeah, of that. Yeah, it's net. There, right, It's the net effect of all those
1: disasters. You know, there will be catastrophes. I mean, it, you can't even try to quantify the, the damage and cost of the New York, of Manhattan getting put under a meter extra of water. It's just billions on billions on billions.
2: It's much cheaper just to plant trees, I can tell you. <laughs> and are you
1: finding quite a warm reception from the powers that be to your solution?
2: Honestly speaking, I haven't really spent a lot of time since going through the whole US-UN pro- process. I haven't spent a lot of time with the powers that be. I'm much more interested in, doing in working with people on the ground. Mm. Yeah, people on the ground, they have a lot of needs. And if you can uh, fulfill on a lot of those needs simultaneously... They are incredibly passionate about actually knuckling down and doing stuff. They got a lot of grit. You know, somebody, uh, I was at a conference once, uh, There was a sort of mixed, you know, people from developing nations, people in developed nations, and it was, the topic was entrepreneurship. And uh, one guy stood up and said, but everybody in my country is entrepreneurial. If they're not entrepreneurial, they're dead. <laughs> <laughs>
1: don't you get a feeling like that at the moment so we see a hundred thousand entrepreneur proposals a year through our various platforms uh, in our day job and it's getting the feeling that because so much information is spread there's so much open source technology that that we all need to be a bit more entrepreneurial needs to be you know even if with code dojo we don't all need to code but we need an appreciation of coding and i think with entrepreneurship we all need an appreciation of how to be innovative with what we face you know the trouble and, and maybe you're right maybe some places to define themselves as that anyway, and they're always thinking of new ways of, of improving or finding clever hacks around.
2: I mean, it's fundamental level. Entrepreneur means do. Yeah. So yeah, we we need to be a, a world full of doers. You know, we need to all have purpose,
3: not victims.
2: Not victims. Uh, I mean, you you look at. <laughs> here's a funny phenomena that I've seen sometimes we'll do a social media campaign and we'll do some surveys after and people who click like get a genuine feeling like they've actually done something valuable
1: mm-hmm. I'd rather like a plant a tree button
2: yeah actually now we one of our partners that planted trees with us previously was Ecosia and that was great you know when people search and they plant a tree just by searching and Ecosia still do that which is great um But people would not even do that they would just click like and say I'm done, I've done my good deed for the day, Mm. I liked something Uh, uh, you know there's very little effort in a like (laughs) that's the polar opposite really of entrepreneurship
0: Yeah, Um, I'm going slightly conscious of the time Mm -hmm. I think we're running a bit over Um, but there's one question I wanted to ask you is given everything we've discussed um, and most of the projects we've discussed there's still They're all ongoing. How on earth do you have the time to, uh, and you know, the mental resources to think about all of them in a, in a meaningful way?
2: There's two answers to that question. Uh, The first answer is use language to enroll lots of teams of people. So Mm, every single one of these organizations has their own CEO and their own hierarchy. And I have a fantastic team at rebel bio, I mean, amazing people. Great people are the solution mm-hmm. to a lot of that. And the other thing is the top tip that I will give you. Do you know why people procrastinate? The thing that makes you actually procrastinate is because it feels good. When you put that little task off, when you put that big thing off, you get a little hit of dopamine. You're like, oh, I can <laughs> worry about that later. Mm-hmm. right? Do you know why people worry?
0: Because they've got stuff. Yeah. No,
2: nope. people worry for exactly the same reason. They, you, you build up this idea that if you worry about it, nothing bad happens. Because all the times you remember worrying, nothing bad actually happened while you were worrying. It's true. And we don't remember pain anyway. We remember success. So we remember all the times we did worry and nothing happened. So again, we get a little, little hit of dopamine. We're like, oh, I've worried about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So that's taking action.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, worrying is like taking action. Procrastination is like taking action. You know, you spend half a day a week worrying if you're an average human. Sucks. Which sucks really badly. So here's the hack. Because, like, I did meditation and personal development, and I learned a lot about how to, you know, just stop worrying, just mm. to turn off that inner voice and just get to work. But it took me years. And one of my guys at Rebel Bio said, Hey, Bill, like, you're calm all the time. How do you stay calm? And I said, well, I spent all this time. He said, well, I don't have any time. Can you come up with a hack for me? You know, like, and I'm like, I thought about it. And I went, you know what? Tell Maybe me, I can. tell me. And the <laughs> hack is procrastinate your worries. When you get that worry, it comes up and you, you're going to worry about it. You just tell that worry, I'm going to put you off to later. You get the same little hit ooh, of dopamine. And it doesn't matter if you forget to worry about it later because it was useless anyway. Oh, Procrastinate your worries.
0: Feel like that's easier said than done.
2: Pick a worry. Something you're worried about right now.
0: Uh it's wide open now. Yeah, I can't think of anything.
2: Right, good. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel great. I feel great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it
2: is easier done than said, to be honest. I've tried this with a lot of people now. Before I shared it with him, I tried it out a whole lot of people. Mm. Uh, I've put it up on Medium. I've got lots of people reading it. Everyone that I've talked to has, has taken it on, has actually found that it's it works. Now, a few people have said to me, even though I've put off my worries and I got my little dopamine and I got to work, they've still sort of stayed in the background. Mm. I've still sort of had them. And I said, very simple, here's step two. Step two, save up all those worries and then actually make a little time to focus worry about them. And the way you focus worry is you say to yourself, what is the absolute worst that can happen? And you worry it till you find the worst that can happen, which is usually the world
3: ends.
2: (laughs) And then you ask yourself, what's the best that can happen? Which is usually you win the lottery. Mm -hmm. And then you ask yourself, what's likely to happen? And then the worry goes away. Now, in that process, you will experience some fear. Yeah. So my suggestion is you make yourself, you know, five minutes every day and do it in the toilet because fear is an amazing laxative.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and there's just <this>, a catharsis. <laughs> Flush those worries away. Yeah, literally. literally. <laughs> literally. Oh, there was a nice one I heard on a different podcast by a guy who was an ex-Marine called Jocko Willink. Yeah. He said every time he's confronted by something bad, the first thing he says is good. doesn't matter what it is because it makes him at least think of why it's good that this happened. And it's very hard to do. It doesn't mean it's always easy. It just means something could go catastrophically wrong and you could say good because it gives you an opportunity to do it differently or good because you get to train harder or good because, yep. you know. It's setting yourself on the hero narrative rather than the victim narrative. Yeah, because I do think Bill's right. You can worry for the sake of worrying and then just indulge that worry and feel... Like your you know life sparring out of control. It's not very. It's very passive.
2: Well, who ever solved anything by worrying about it,
1: ever? Well, not on purpose. Maybe by accident they. Mm, I don't know. Worrying
2: and thinking are two very different things. In fact, if you want to really think about something, you're best doing it talking out loud to yourself. Mm. You know, there's this thing in coding called rubber duck debugging. That's where you get an int- you know an impossible you know coding problem. And what you do is you read your source code out to your rubber duck. And by actually articulating it, you will almost inevitably find the bug. That's amazing. It's the same thing for thinking. If you think out loud, and there are many studies that show this, that you think out loud, you are much more likely to get through the problem than if you try and use the internal you know, monologue to solve it.
1: But sometimes I feel like we don't truly want to unearth the problem because it can rise out of the ashes and you think, oh, I really do need to look at this one thing. And now I've articulated it, it's almost unavoidable to, to hide away from. Um, Good. Good. <laughs> you That's your
2: very <laughs> <laughs> What well,
1: I, I have a lead-in now, um, I guess, which goes into our sort of final section, which is this area of taking impossible problems that can be inevitably solved. Um, what does that future look like in terms of what you think in the next five, ten years of your predict- predictions of things that were inevitably Going to solve that seem impossible or like sci fi to us now?
2: Well, we're going to upgrade ourselves. And right now, that's kind of impossible. Like, we can do a few implants and things, but we are going to upgrade ourselves big time. You think
1: hardware or you think uh, biological? Both. I, I don't see the distinction. <laughs> okay.
2: You know, but like, it's just our existence on this little mortal coil is just too short and painful as it is. So, you're not going to prevent people from using this tech and the tech is getting super sophisticated. So, you know, you want to change your eye color. You want to make yourself stronger, smarter, faster. You want to make sure you don't get cancer. These are all engineering problems now. And very soon, those interventions are gonna happen. And this to me means that we really have to become a spacefaring species, because we don't have room on this planet. We have plenty of resources above this planet
1: so if you saw a a viable solution for sort of asteroid mining or collection of space materials right now as a venture partner would you consider getting into that realms of of backing
2: it's not my thing right but if it was my thing sure
1: and do you think we? i mean you
2: know there's about 400 billion dollars worth of you know harvestable materials on any reasonable metallic asteroid you can actually, with today's technology, four hundred billion dollars will actually buy you quite a ride to harvest that stuff.
3: Hmm.
1: And, and you think this our, our increased interaction with space um, will start increasing in the next sort of ten years? Because I know they just said that Japanese billionaire is being sent around the moon, is he not? Um, do you think that will become more part of the common dialogue?
2: I think it has to. Uh, you know, and that's another and that's another area where we really have to. know get off our backside and and get off planet you're still Um, gonna
1: have to be traveling by boat if you're not careful (laughs) people people could be flying around the moon and you (laughs) will
2: well you know in order to be off planet in a meaningful way we need to generate energy sources off planet and that's very doable too
1: Uh, are we interested in the moon at all do you think yeah we should be so yeah because I feel like a lot of conversations are skipping straight to Mars and that bothers me for two reasons one I think in trying to solve the issue of of living on mars which is extremely difficult we're ignoring terraforming parts of the planet and secondly i kind of think we're constantly moving beyond the moon which is what 5 to 5 to 7 days or something away instead of 9 months or 6 to 9 months
2: more more importantly the energy budget on the moon is so much simpler mm. i mean they've discovered you know subsurface water on the moon
1: you know rocket, and, fuel, yeah. and, and, and
2: rocket fuel and air and everything else you want plus it's got a huge amount of solar collection space. Yeah. So the energy budget on the moon is fantastic. The energy budget on Mars, not so great. If you wanted to look into the furthest future, we'll probably create a biotech engineering solution to terraform Venus. Because Venus's mm. energy budget is even better than ours. And global warming, biologically, can be reversed. And Venus is an example of runaway global warming. Wow, that'd be cool.
0: That's a long way in the future to terraform Venus <laughs> with, with, with we, we Forest Trees. Well,
2: it won't be We Forest Trees, but it might be a relative of aerobacterogenes. You never know.
0: Hmm. Um, and from the sublime to the more mundane, is there a, a, a startup-related book or resource or tool that you'd recommend to people listening?
2: I'm very fond of Grit. Mm. Yes, a, yeah. a new book that came out. Yeah. And I think that's fantastic very fond of an old book called the one minute manager cool. because a lot of startups just you know they've never managed anybody before <laughs> and one minute manager isn't the perfect management book but at least it gives you a clue
0: <laughs> mm, no, no. and and quite quickly
2: yeah, yeah. quite quickly uh, it's a very small book yeah. it's a very very good book there
1: i think there should be a lot of books there which inform people about what they don't know in one minute because i think there's so many industries we look at and People just make sweeping generalizations and you just a minute glance at how complicated it is would be nice.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think this, I had down here the si- a single thing that we should all do more of when it comes to um, preventing climate change. I, I guess we've already answered that. Oh, yeah. But, I, but I guess, I guess to, to follow on, is it, is it worth saying that um, it's worth asking you whether you still support all the other um, activities that are going on in that area? Sure. It's, so not just, it's not just trees are the solution, but it is we have to make a um, a sustainable shift to renewables and. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
2: and and you got to include in renewables things like thorium reactors, where what? they make Sorry. thorium reactors.
1: First time I've heard of this.
2: <laughs> okay, so uh, back in when nuclear power was starting to be a thing, there were two choices for reactor design. One used uranium and plutonium, and the other one used another heavy metal called thorium. Now, thorium you can harvest easily from seawater. You can harvest uranium from seawater too, but thorium is much easier. But the nuclear reaction of thorium leaves almost no waste. It's a little bit slower, it's a little bit cooler, but it leaves almost no waste, and you can get all of your thorium from seawater Thousands of years of energy at our current expansion rate and harvesting thorium out of seawater really doesn't hurt the seawater that much.
1: Especially if the sea level is rising.
0: Mm. Is there anyone doing this?
2: Yeah, there's quite a few um, like if you look it up, there are projects one of the problems we have is that nuclear power fell out of favour so badly that hardly anyone studies it. Yeah. And so most of our nuclear physicists and engineers are quite old. Yeah. So mm. we, we need to actually breathe some new life into that yeah you know, fission reactions are also going the like, like, fusion reactions are also going to be very good The thorium is actually a pretty good right now technology um if you If you create the right kind of reactor design, it can be very stable and you've got to consider that a renewable
1: do we thing. get into net um positive energy fusion because don't they say that it's it's basically about equal now or still just a bit loss making to make fusion It's a bit loss making maybe equal.
2: Fusion reactors are very complex pieces of kit. Mm. Thorium reactors are far less complex pieces of kit. You know, at the point where we get fusion reactors to really work, fantastic. But you know, I'm looking at what can we do right now. Mm. You know, if you were to do a Manhattan-style project on thorium reactors, you could probably power most of the world with thorium reactors within a decade. It's pretty quick stuff. And they can't go supercritical. Impossible, so you've got a very safe system that automatically shuts down that produces very little waste. That's to me a whole bunch of boxes ticked,
3: hmm.
1: spellbinding, yeah. just like literally just
0: well. Yeah, I mean, on that note, I can't believe we, we have to end, but we um, we do have to end at some point. Um, uh, absolutely,
1: <laughs> yeah, because I feel like we're stopping you getting on with really yeah. productive ways of saving yeah. the planet. I feel, so. I
0: feel like we've only seen the, the tip of the iceberg, um, and you've fount of uh, wisdom and knowledge Um, but to end is there anything that you'd like to ask of our listeners
2: sure please figure out ways to get the companies that you know and are involved in in planting trees with Weforest or any other organisation that's doing the right thing because it's great that you plant trees yourself and you know one tree sequesters roughly a ton of CO2 so that's a lot of trips across the Atlantic you you can feel good about it's even greater if you can get the companies that you're involved with, that you buy from, that you sell to, that you work with to really put pressure on getting them to plant lots and lots of trees because our engines of commerce are the most powerful engines that we have ever as a species created. And we could solve this problem so much faster if we all got together and did that with our engines of commerce and we could make a profit doing it.
1: Mm. Mm. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thanks Thanks so much for coming. Absolutely great. Cheers.
2: Cheers.
0: If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup mic mic or get us an email or your at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations.
1: Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory back to Entel. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail Building London are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out ntl.co and thank you for listening. Goodbye.